if you had one piece of advice you'd give somebody who's six to 12 months behind you, what would that be? Your mindset is is everything. I think pivot and perseverance and mindset are all intertwined. Mm-hmm. And any business, no matter what business you're in, you're going to have to pivot. The businesses that pivot are the sustainable, scalable businesses. Having that mindset of growth, just persevering through every single obstacle that comes by. And honestly, I don't think that's possible unless you truly have passion and desire for what you're doing. Because you won't be able to persevere unless that passion is fueling you. And if your mindset is not there, you're not even going to get to the point where a challenge comes for you to persevere from. So I feel like just challenging yourself to have that growth mindset, it's hard. You know, obviously we're humans, we're going to get negative, but just keeping that consciousness to to flip to a growth mindset and then remembering your outcome and your long-term goal so that when challenges do come, persevering is much easier because you're keeping an eye on the bigger picture. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. And this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Very excited for today's show. It's one of our first deal episodes, and we have Janish Patel, who recently closed on an eight-unit apartment in Chicago, Illinois. So Janish, welcome. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's it's part two. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's been a little bit. I think you had a 20-unit under contract when you first reached out to me, and you closed on eight. So well, we'll dive into that. We'll talk about how 20 went to eight in a little bit. But you know, before we do, tell us a little bit about your background and what got you into apartment investing. I'm a 21-year-old finance major at DePaul. Uh, I'm actually a senior right now, so I'll be graduating 2023. What really primarily got me into real estate was about three years ago, I was looking for financial freedom, but I was looking for the most stable vehicle to do so. I went the normal route, looking at stocks, indexes, day trading insurance, you name it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I came to the consistent conclusion that I wanted cash flow. I didn't know it yet, but I wanted an asset that will cash flow specifically multifamily. If you buy right, it could hedge through recessions, inflation. So it it really led me to multifamily. And ever since then, I've really just taken off just diving Mm -hmm. in deeper. Nice. Now you came on the podcast. Let's see. I think we released it in March with uh, with Vish. Talk a little bit about that. We set you up with Vish. You're able to ask a bunch of questions. Uh, was there any big takeaways from that podcast episode? Yeah, definitely. I remember I was asking very specific questions in terms mm-hmm. of how to manage relationships with you know with property management, mm-hmm. especially when there isn't any incentive early on when there isn't a contract finalized. Also, just how certain metrics are taken when underwriting, when market data is not clear. Those two have been very, very helpful because I was able to learn through Vish, like, hey, sometimes you might have to pay property management to give them incentive. Sometimes you can't trust market data, but you know, depending on the market that you're in, if you're in a tertiary market, comps might not be as evident. So Mm -hmm. you might have to make the trips down there, act as a tenant toward the property, just take more of a hands-on approach to get the missing answers, opposed to Mm -hmm. relying so much on the internet and really, you know, building personal relationships. I like that. The proactive approach. And we were talking, this is a podcast episode I think I recorded yesterday, but somebody asked about due diligence and 
you know, my, my response to due diligence was the thing that you're looking to do primarily in due diligence is validate every assumption that you made. Because at some point you made an assumption somewhere on your underwriting. Make sure you keep track of those, validate it, but be very proactive at getting that information. I love it. Good answer. So so let, so you got the uh, 20 unit under contract or 20 units under contract. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Actually, anything more about you that you want to talk about or, or should we just jump uh, right into the property? Yeah, we, we can hop right back in. All right. So you got 20 units under contract. Tell us about that, how that came about and how you locked those things up under, under contract to begin with. There was a broker. His name is Jack. He's actually been great. I've built my relationship with him. Obviously, this is my first deal. And he's a younger broker. And he works for Kaiser, a group in Chicago. And I made it very evident off the rip the first time I talked to him, like, hey, I'm ready to close. I have proof of funds if you're going to ask me for him. I have a sponsor that'll sign off on the loan. Like, I ha- I'm literally ready to go. But mm-hmm. I will be completely honest with you. I have no experience. My mentor has tons of experience. And he's worked right alongside with me. He's sponsoring the deal. But I'm going to be honest, I have no experience. So if there's any upfront contingencies that you need me to clear that I need to go through, just let me know because I am ready to close and there is that one obstacle. And I made it very clear with him upfront. And every time that he brought a deal to me, he would bring a deal that was catered to my exact criteria. Mm -hmm. So when this deal came about, he sent it over to me and I'm very, very quick. I wanted to act fast. I want to underwrite fast. I want to be competitive, especially in a market where we were just last year. As soon as I got the deal, I drove down there, tore the property. I liked the property a lot. And it was a great deal in terms of numbers. It was already a stabilized asset. So I felt comfortable putting an LOI in, just given Mm -hmm. that I had so much legroom, given that it was a cash flow deal. Okay. So 20 units. uh, tell, Tell me what the 20 units looked like and configuration, everything else. Yeah. So the 20 units were all the same. They're basically identical. They were 900 square feet, two bed units. They were basically, I would say like class C units, you know, nothing, nothing too special, but they were great to live in. I personally toured one low vacancies and they were all filled when we got there. So it was really just a transition of ownership and the tenants have been there for a really long time as well. So it, it was just a matter of transitioning. Okay. Okay. So, so 20 units. Now you mentioned earlier, they're, they're all duplexes. So 10 different duplexes all together on the same street. And, and you ended up getting those, you ended up getting 20 under contract. Now you ended up closing on eight. Why, why eight instead of all 20? That's a great question. And, you know, this will kind of tie into the, to the last question that, you know, we're going to get into. We were on contract for 20. It's really, really funny because there's a total of 20 units. 12 mm-hmm. units were owned by one person in, in the same block. And mm-hmm. then the other person owned eight. This is just one big strip and different parcels. So the, the person with 12 units goes to the person with eight units and presents them an offer. Hey, we should sell. You know, we would get a great deal because we're all on the same block. It'd be weird to sell just 12 out of the entire block. Let's package this up and get on the market. So they were the initiators. We're under contract. We're done with inspection. We're done with due diligence. We're ready to get finalized the lending. And then they back out. Property manager was ready to close the deal. And, you know, he was kind of inciting that, you know, she wanted to just sit on the cash flow. She didn't want to reinvest in a time where obviously the rates are high. She didn't want to go do all that. I was like, we're under a contract. So I decided to take the steps to try to scare her off. I hired a litigation attorney to kind of threaten her. Her lawyer was smart. She knew that we weren't going to sue her. I just wanted to go down fighting. I wanted to, you know, empty the clip, so to say, metaphorically. But that didn't work out. And then thank God the the person with the eight units actually wanted to sell. So mm-hmm. we were able to move forward with him and get that done. Okay. So, so two different owners, 
interesting, interesting story. So one owner was the the original one that wanted to sell and ended up being the person that backed out. Okay, so you ended up ended up agreeing with one owner to 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 purchase. So you bought the eight, and the other twelve fell through because the owner basically got cold feet and changed their mind. Exactly. Unfortunately, but you know, I stay persevering, and and that's the theme throughout all of this. And it's just a matter of getting the next one. Now it's I'm I'm blessed to have closed the eight, and the learning experience from this entire process is honestly worth more than having all twenty units. All right. Got it. Got it. All right. Let's go into a little bit more, you know, about the the property. So what was the purchase price? And then let's talk about financing, because I know that was that was also a little bit of an issue. What was the purchase price? And tell us how you lined up debt. Right. So the original purchase price for the 20 units was at two million. It was originally at two point one and we were able to get under at two. And then we just kept the consistency at one hundred thousand a door and closed the eight at eight hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. In terms of financing, we had a lender. It was through a referral through my lawyer, actually. He's mm-hmm. done tons of business with him. And he was asking for a Schedule E form, which is typically not as prevalent in, in yeah. you know, especially with T12s and just basic financials that are, you know, yeah, it's, where the, it's where the rents and royalties go. So when, when, yeah. If if you don't have a good solid T12, if, if the property doesn't have good solid financials, the Schedule E is is one thing you can ask for to you get at least a, a snapshot of what it looks like. But who knows what people put in their Schedule E's? You know, I mean, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and that was the thing, right? So the lender said, "Hey, all I need is a Schedule E." I'm like, you know, there's going to be lots of the numbers aren't going to be exactly on point given that depreciation and and things like that. And they're like, "No, don't worry, it's a relationship based lender." The guy with the eight gave up the schedule. The lady with the 12 did not. So we transitioned lenders. Mm-hmm. We worked with a T12 approach. And then, you know, we we finally were able to lock in lending at 75% LTV. And then, you know, a week before close, she decides to back out. Yeah, that's that's difficult. All right. So so she backed out. You went forward. You know, the I assume the lender just made some adjustments. And all right, now instead of 20, we're at eight. Everything else still works. Numbers still work fine. So um so let's let's talk about the uh, the other part of it. So I think you said seventy five percent debt. So you know math in public. Um, there's another two hundred or so thousand you had to raise just to get the purchase price, or you had to you had to come up with. So how tell us about the equity side? How you were able to close the, the deal with equity? Sure, sure. Yeah. So honestly, um, this I've been doing this for about three years, and the first two years have really just been education. Um, you know, given, you know, I'm not, I'm not blind. I know I'm, I'm a young kid and this is a, a big thing that I'm doing. So I decided to really, really educate myself before I started speaking to investors. And before I even had a single investor meeting, I wanted to be like this. If there were any questions, I didn't want to stutter. I didn't want to show any hesitation. I wanted to come really prepared and confident and convict, like speak with conviction. And, and that really did, you know, sway a lot of my equity. Um, so when it came down to equity, I, you know, I went to the traditional route, everybody that I knew on my contacts, friends, families, mm-hmm. friends of family. I just, I was meeting with, I was literally like over a hundred meetings in like two months, you know, just mm-hmm. meeting with people every single day. And then finally, you know, I came up with, all right, I have about 500,000 in soft committed capital that I know I can convert the, you know, with the snap of a deal, which is mm-hmm. why I felt comfortable with the $2 million purchase price. Um, and then. Obviously, when things didn't fall through, I just didn't use all of the equity. But uh, honestly, I was literally just taking meetings with everybody in my contacts. If if my my friend's uncle knew somebody, I wanted to meet with him immediately, just kind of build a relationship, 
um, build a substantive relationship. Obviously, this is a 506B deal, but I wanted to go ahead and stay within the realms of the people that I knew and really squeeze through my knowledge and my expertise, a service that that would be really beneficial to them. And I would just set up equity meetings and, and, and get conversions. It's really a numbers game, just like just like this whole business. Yeah, there, there, there's definitely definitely a numbers part to it. You know, the more people you talk with, the more potential investors. But you know, what, what I like is you you had you you put a big focus on you know raising capital before running out and getting deals. I think I see judging by the amount of emails that hit my inbox saying, "Hey, we have two weeks to raise capital for this deal. Can you help us?" You know, I, I think there there's a lot of people who go into the capital raise. On the opposite end of the spectrum, completely unprepared. So, what you said is you you had hundreds of meetings with people, you know, phone, Zoom, you know, in person, whatever it took. You know, prior to you had a bunch of soft commits going into this, so you you knew about what you could raise, and that helped you have a lot more confidence with a two million dollar deal because you you knew you had the soft commits behind you. Yeah, and adding to that, honestly, we we were really naive in the in the first sense that you said. I had an equity group early on, and he told me I can fund deals three, four, five million. You know, I have a group that could fund these deals. So I was like, okay. I started looking for deals of that stature, and mm-hmm. you know, there was a deal that I came across. It was for five point seven million. We had it under contract, and then, you know, when earnest money came, you know, to to be paid, I went to my investors, and they're like, yeah, we're gonna need more time. This, 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 and I was like, you know what? And the broker and I had a great relationship. So I just told him, like, honestly, like, hey, man, I, I hate to do this to you, but, you know, I'm not going to work with this equity anymore. And, you know, thank God our relationship has not suffered. And he's, you know, we're still good to this day. He understands I'm young. I'm going to be in this for a long time. And mm-hmm. he understands that I, I'm a pretty sophisticated investor and I and I know what I'm doing. So I was able to really pivot and, and understand that, you know, equity, soft commits, you, you need that prior to really honing and honing in on a project of, of magnitude, you know, especially given the lack thereof of Asian capital. Yep. And some, something else I'll point out, I've said this, you know, dozens of times, you know, it's, it's better to get into the game with an eight unit. And I mean, from here, you, you have nowhere to go, but up, I mean, it's, it's just, you yeah. got an eight unit. Now you've got some track record, your, your investors see what you've done. You've been able to raise the capital, get the deal and you're in the game. You're in the game. And I think a lot of people, if I were to point out one mistake, I think a lot of people, you know, try to go a little too big out the gate, bite off more they can than they can chew, and it not working out it ends up creating a lot more problems. Oh, I completely agree. That that five point seven million dollar deal was eighty units. So, mm-hmm. and it was a value add business plan. And and looking it back in hindsight now, you know, it's I'm I'm happy we did not end up with that deal. You know, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So cool. All right, so uh, wrap wrapping up. Um, besides besides the debt, were there any other issues that you had? You know, any other hitches getting to the closing table? Um, other than that, not really. I mean, one issue that I did have obviously was I paid more for inspections and things like that that I wasn't able to retrieve. Mm-hmm. But other than that, there I would say there was this one thing that that was kind of tricky, which which I was able to. I'm going to speak to my syndication attorney and kind of move the ball from there. Going back to what we mentioned about raising capital and having capital funded and ready to go when a deal is ready to close. Mm -hmm. I guess I was late to the process of of informing my syndication attorney, but it's really weird because, you know, they require a a down payment early before we even start them drafting the PPM and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we hadn't fully put down earnest money and things like that. So they take about two weeks to create the PPM and finalize it. And then it's like, you have about a two, three week gap to raise capital. I would say that 
there wasn't a problem now because we had the capital committed. But moving forward, I want to meet with my syndication attorney to address the timeline in which is most effective to have the PPM ready and then that window of of raising capital. Because I felt like if I was still had some commits, but not real soft commits, it would have been hard to really pull that capital in a short amount of time, given the the small window between the, the PPM being finalized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it does take attorneys time. And it's it's one of those things where you, you have to give them the time to get the documents. And here's something else that I've learned is you know, the first time they give you the finalized documents, there's usually issues with the documents. So you have to go through them. And what's happened with us a couple of times, and it's kind of embarrassing, is when your investors find typographical errors in your PPM that uh, that you overlooked or your attorney overlooked. That's happened uh, a couple of times and actually just very recently. Yeah, the attorney, yeah, get them involved early. So you have your documents, you have time to proofread it because you want to have those documents signed by all of your investors. And before you raise the capital, before you bring the money through the door, can you do it without the document signed? Probably it's much safer if you you know have all the documents ready to go. It's much better presentation to the investors as well, where it's, all right, here's the documents. Now wire the money and you know we're good. Yeah. Anyway, good lesson learned there. Good lesson learned. All right. Any anything about the deal that uh, that we missed so far? I mean, any, anything about the process that we haven't talked about? Honestly, just this first deal, mm-hmm. I would say this. Um, you know, when I was learning about the closing process, mm-hmm. I would just learn the steps that I would have to take. So, for mm-hmm. example, you know, after the LOI is accepted, you're you're going to get the PSA. After the PSA is done, you'll go into the due diligence process, confirm everything and anything that you want get the inspector in there. And and just that timeline, I, I realized that it's really up to me. I realized I have to start pulling pieces right away. And what was helpful is that that last deal that I mentioned, the $5.7 million deal, mm-hmm. I was getting ready to get an inspector to go out there. I had an attorney to, to represent the deal. I, I had all these pieces ready. So when this when this eight unit came, I already had these people ready to go. And, and that really helped me. But even with that, just, just a timeline of like, you want to be ready to go with this week, I want to get this inspector done right away. Like you want to just have that timeline ready, just like with the investors, with the PPM, everything is really, really chronological and there's going to be hiccups throughout the way. So the more you can plan in advance, and that's really what I'm learning, have that structure for closing, the more efficient and the more easier you can pivot through any any loopholes or, or, or any setbacks that you get. Yeah. Yeah. Makes makes a lot of sense. All right. So you closed last Friday. What, what's what's on the docket right now? I mean, what's what's your game plan for the property? We actually just, my team and I just had a meeting to discuss how we want, we're going to self-manage this deal. So we basically just created a structure and an outline as to how we want to manage this deal. There's no renovations and there's no value add component. So it's more so just creating that system of creating a community environment with our tenants, introducing ourselves, becoming basically like a landlord, but in a sense where I want to provide a more community oriented feel where I want to eliminate that word landlord and be more of like just the person you need to, to take care of things. I want it to be more of a, a friendly atmosphere, enhance their experience and and really have actions to do so. I want to create, you know, things where if there's kids there, have if we can, you know, give some school supplies or, or things like that. I really want to create like a community feel and I was really just just basically talking about the system in which we want to do that and how we want to maintain the property, obviously, in terms of structure, when we want to start creating monthly reports, distributions to investors, our CRM system so they can access things, mm-hmm. really just setting up the management and the structure of management. 
that's kind of what we're working on right now. Yeah, and that, that's really important, especially if you're looking to scale. And, and one thing for, for people listening, you know, that's that's another good reason to start with a small property first out, because with eight units, it's a lot easier to figure out your your systems. It's it's easier to build your systems off of an eight unit property and scale up than it than it would be with that 80 unit property you guys were looking at. You know, that, that $5.7 million deal versus, you know, a, a much smaller deal. You're gonna go in, you're gonna basically build your systems. You're going to figure out how you want to operate, how you want to manage things, and then presumably rinse and repeat it later. Yeah, I, I completely agree because inherently through scale, there's going to be complexity. So it's the matter of establishing that system now. So when that complexity comes, you're able to delegate and manage because that structure has been set in place. And, yeah. and that's what's most important. And my team talk about, our, my team and I are always talking about that, especially given this closing process, because now that I we've been through it, I can delegate like, hey, you'll deal with the insurance and the property management now. Uh, I'll deal with the inspector. Like it, we have more of a, a cohesive mm-hmm. structure as to who can deal with what to make it as efficient as possible. And that's really important, especially when, when you mentioned scale. All right. So what's uh, next for you? Good question. So honestly, uh, this puts a smile to my face to this day, but my mentor who, who I cherish, uh, Eric Kogan, he, uh, you know, I, I thanked him for for helping me because he's been a big mentor of mine. Just, you know, with even with the five point seven million dollar deal, we I've been underwriting deals before this one for a long time. Him and I would go over all of the underwriting as he would look to sponsor the deal. So he's just been a, a tremendous help to me. And after, uh, you know, I mentioned that I've closed this deal. He mentioned a project that he had in, in Chicago and, and he mentioned, you know, it's, it's a paper napkin deal right now, but when it does come to fruition, partner with him with him on that, kind of discuss the business plan, the underwriting. And, you know, he offered me to be on the GP side to really learn and, and grow. So my plan is currently I wanted to, before Eric even brought that up to me, because mm-hmm. I was already thinking long-term, my goal was because obviously I had raised 500,000 and, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't use all of that. So I was thinking... I have a friend in Texas as well, and you know he's he buys Class A assets. And I asked him recently, how is how is the the lag from interest rates rising um, correlating to a tra- you know high transaction market like like Houston or just in the tertiary markets of, of Texas in general? Because when there's high volume, you're going to see more of a reflection in the market change. When I asked him that question, he was already telling me that cap rates are decompressing and things of that nature. My mindset was, you know, I want to raise a million dollars from that leftover equity that I have. Mm-hmm. And look for a, a value add deal, a $3 million deal, try to get the most amount of units in the best market, population growth, job growth, job diversity in that market. And then look for a, a you know, $3 million deal plus one with value add and bridge into it and, and kind of go about that route. But, you know, Eric brought this deal up to me, value add deal. So my plan is, you know, kind of work with him on that. And then when I do go to start leveraging that experience, my investors will be even more trusting because I have my experienced operator and I've been on the GP side of that execution. So I felt like, you know, the dominoes are aligning, but I want to do those coincidingly where I'm able to start raising capital for my company, as mm-hmm. well as work with, you know, Eric's company to close on that deal when it does come into fruition. Nice. Nice. I love it. I love it. So it's very, very calculated growth. So here's a question that I love from the first deal episodes. If you had one piece of advice you'd give somebody who's six to 12 months behind you, what would that be? Man, that is an insanely great question. I would say there's two parts of the answer. Your mm-hmm. mindset and perseverance. Your mindset is is everything. I have to thank my high school teacher, Mr. Schwan. You know, he was a guru. He he taught me, taught me word, you know, pivot. He taught me words like SWOT analysis, just really understanding business to a core. He was able to really 
lock in the word pivot for me. And I think pivot and perseverance and mindset are all intertwined. Mm-hmm. And any business, no matter what business you're in, you're going to have to pivot. The businesses that pivot are the sustainable, scalable businesses. Mm-hmm. And in multifamily, you just mentioned to me off camera, like some of the hurdles that you're going through with sale, things like that. You have to be able to pivot and, and to keep that pivot mindset, you have to be in a growth mindset. So mm-hmm. every obstacle that would come across my way, my team and I are growing. So I know whatever emotions I reflect is the vibe of the room. So I would address the problem head on and I would say, okay, this is where we're at right now. These are the options that we can take and let's make the best calculated move. And mm-hmm. it's just about pivoting, you know, and it's having that mindset of growth, just persevering through every single obstacle that comes by. And Honestly, I don't think that's possible unless you truly have passion and desire for what you're doing, because Mm -hmm. you won't be able to persevere unless that passion is fueling you. And if your mindset is not there, you're not even going to get to the point where a challenge comes for you to persevere from. So I feel like just challenging yourself to have that growth mindset, it's hard. You know, obviously Mm -hmm. we're humans, we're going to get negative, but just keeping that consciousness to to flip to a growth mindset and then remembering your outcome and your long-term goal so that when challenges do come, persevering is much easier because you're keeping an eye on the bigger picture. I would say that that's the biggest thing. All right. Good advice. Good advice. So thanks for very much for your time. Very much appreciated walking us through this deal of yours. Congratulations on getting it closed. I know it took a long time getting it closed, but congratulations on that. Best of luck. So last question, how can listeners learn more about you? Listeners can learn about me through LinkedIn. You guys can follow me on LinkedIn. It's just my name, J-A-Y-N-I-S-H space Patel, P-A-T-E-L. I'm on Instagram as well. It's my name, J-A-Y-N-I-S-H-N-23. Follow me there. I really do plan on marketing. So that's a good question because I didn't want to market this company because I felt like it would be very foolish of me. I know it, you know you should start, but I, I'm really about credibility and, and having something to speak on. So I wanted to go ahead and have this eight unit closed, have our website finished, have proof and credibility. So mm-hmm. when I start marketing, there's a proof of concept there and, and there's credibility back behind what I'm saying. It's not just a kid that's looking to be a syndicator. It's a kid that's closed and been through the process. And now that's looking to take the next steps to scale. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, once again, great having you on the show and that's a wrap for today. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Uh, it, it's a pleasure being here. I love coming on here. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.